We're currently doing a series on joy here at Liberty Church, and today I'm going to be talking about joy and suffering. And right away, you might be thinking, uh, in a series about joy, why on earth are we talking about suffering? Putting uh, joy next to suffering is a bit of a weird juxtaposition, isn't it? They seem almost like opposites to each other. So maybe, uh, maybe we're talking about it because joy and suffering are head-to-head, and we need to get rid of suffering. Often that's uh, the answer that feels most instinctive, most intuitive, to feel more happiness or joy in my life. I need to minimize suffering. The question of how we can increase our happiness is explored in Jonathan Haidt's book, The Happiness Hypothesis. And he essentially uh, he boils it down to improving our mental state, if necessary, through things like uh, cognitive therapy or antidepressants or even meditation. And then he talks about improving our living conditions. So that's talking about things like uh, how much money we have, our stress levels, our health. Uh, and then he also mentions being involved in voluntary activities, which he then says... Uh, gives you goals to work towards with others and also gives you a greater sense of community and meaningful relationships in your life. And all of this kind of makes sense to us, doesn't it? I mean, those are good things. When I read those things, I I intuitively think, yeah, I get that. That seems sensible. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with these things. So it does, I think, fairly represent how our world at large thinks about joy and also how we intuitively think about joy as well. And it's interesting that the road to joy or happiness described here is essentially about removing suffering. But the Bible actually seems to be saying something different. Unlike Wilson's problem, uh, Wilson's problem that he had last week, if you remember, uh, of not having a lot of Bible passages to work with for talking about Jesus' joy, there are actually plenty of passages in the Bible that talk about suffering. Uh, and there are plenty of passages that talk about joy. And here's the striking part. There are many passages that put them side by side. So the Bible doesn't pit joy against suffering. It's kind of odd, actually. The Bible talks about joy in suffering, and sometimes even joy through or due to suffering. So it's not that spectrum of suffering on the one side through to happiness on the other. No, it actually seems that they can hold together. And that's pretty counterintuitive. How can that be? They seem so uh, at odds with each other, yet with God, it seems that they can exist side by side together at the same time. How can that be true? That's what we're going to explore today. I want to start by acknowledging that suffering really sucks. I don't know what you're going through at the moment. Um, I know for a few people, but... Um, not everyone in our church by far, of course, but in talking about suffering, we're of course dealing with something very deep and something very close to home. 
Some things that we go through in life are really painful. The death of a loved one or serious long-lasting illness or financial strain that puts pressure on your relationships. And for some of you, that's a long-lasting or even permanent and very deep pain. And sometimes life throws us curveballs and things completely don't go as we'd expected or hoped for them to go. I wonder what you've hoped for and been let down by in life. Had you hoped to have friends in your life who truly know you, who get you? Or had you hoped uh, to be a world changer, but now life feels kind of mediocre and like a struggle? Or had you hoped for that parent to be around for many more years than they actually were? Or maybe you'd hoped, you'd expected to, uh, to have found a marriage partner by now, or you'd hoped for there to be toddlers running around your household by now, and those things haven't happened. So it's not just that your circumstances are hard, but what you were hoping for with all your being, life hasn't delivered that. Life hasn't lived up to that. So how does that whole experience of human life fit with a good God? How does it fit with a God who's involved in our lives? Or maybe for you, it's not that your hopes for life haven't been met, but you're struggling with an anxiety or a depression that you can't explain or link to a particular circumstance. It's just there, and that feels really confusing. Or you might be dealing with a suffering that results from a particular sin in your life or from the sin of someone else. And at that point, I think it makes sense that we start to ask questions like, is God really good? And is he really with me and for me? Does he really care at all? And those are really important questions. And I think those questions really get to the heart of the issue. And of course, when this is going on, joy can feel incredibly far away. Yet, uh, we see these stories of God's people throughout history having great joy in the midst of terrible suffering. The Apostle Paul, for example, he wrote his letter to the Philippians while he was in prison being persecuted for his faith. Yet he says in Philippians 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And actually, the whole letter is full of expressions of joy and gratitude to God. Or some of you may know the story of Horatio Spafford. He wrote the hymn, It Is Well, in the late 1800s. And the story behind that is that he wrote the hymn after some awful, incredibly traumatic events in his life. So first, he lost his four-year-old son to illness, and later, all four of his daughters drowned when a ship taking them from America to England sank in the ocean. And this is a man who must have experienced a grief and sorrow that I can't even begin to imagine. And it was in light of those events that he then wrote his hymn. And what does he say? He says, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. 
So Horatio Spafford, in spite of all these circumstances, says that it is well with his soul. That's crazy, isn't it? It it sort of defies logic. It doesn't make sense. How can this be? Where does this peace and joy come from? Or for a more recent example, I've been reading this excellent little book by Andrew and Rachel Wilson called The Life You Never Expected. And in this book, they tell their story. Andrew and Rachel are a couple from England who discovered that not one, but both of their kids have a severe regressive autism. And they share their experience of basically spiritually surviving and clinging to Jesus through this incredibly trying situation. And at one point in the book, Andrew recounts the moment that they started realizing that their second child also had severe autism. So for about a year, uh, they'd been coming to terms with the fact that their first child, their son, was severely autistic and that had resulted uh, in the death of many dreams. But their one kind of consolation through all this was... um, well, their, their present consolation was that they now had a second child, their daughter, and so maybe some of those dreams were going to come to fruition after all. But then uh, they started to realize that she was also regressing into uh, a severe autism. And at first, uh, Andrew says that he was in denial about it, but at the moment that it really hit him, he says this, I was overwhelmed by the most sweeping, drowning sense of pain and anguish that I've ever experienced. Ran into the playroom, curled up on the floor, and wailed until I thought there was nothing left. It was, and still is, the low point of my entire life. But even in this incredibly difficult circumstance, it's evident in the pages of this book that these are people who have joy in God. They don't say that it's easy. They actually say they have to actively fight for it, fight for their joy. But they also say that they can see the love of God in spite of and even through their pain. So again, this evokes the question, how on earth can this be? Joy absolutely doesn't seem to fit with those kind of circumstances. So where does it come from? And as we search the scriptures on this, uh, we start to see that our trials and sufferings are best understood in light of God's understanding of our sufferings, of his goodness and sovereignty in them, of the amazing promises that he's made to us and that he's faithful to keep and of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus above anything else. And all of these things are ultimately wrapped up in the wonderful truth that God is with us in our sufferings, caring for us as our loving Father. I think that's ultimately where the Apostle Paul and Horatio Spafford and Andrew and Rachel Wilson find their joy in the presence and nearness of God, displayed in all these different ways. So we're going to explore God's Word together a bit to try to understand these things a little better. And before we do that, I just want to say 
But I, of course, don't have all the answers on the question of why God allows suffering. This is a, a huge topic and a really important question. And we, we, of course, also just don't have time to unpack every element of it. But there are plenty of great books that you can read uh, to help you look into this more. So here are just a few that I would recommend. The first one is, uh, If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain. It's quite a short book by uh, John Dixon, but a really great introduction to the topic. You can read it in about an hour and a half, I'd say. Then uh, there's also The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. Or there's another one called Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. So go and check those out if you want to uh, look into that particular element of this topic further. The first thing to say uh, is that God's word assures us that God understands our suffering. As John Lennox put it, God hasn't remained distant to the problem of human suffering, but has himself become part of it. So what that means is that God understands your suffering in the most real and tangible way, because he became part of humanity. He experienced temptation and suffering himself throughout his life and ultimately on the cross. In Hebrews 4.15, we read that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus can identify with us. He can sympathize with us because he himself was subject to all kinds of suffering and temptation. And God also understands relational suffering. He understands rejection. Imagine God lovingly creating the whole world and his creation turning their backs on him and saying they don't need him, don't want him. That hurts and God understands. So sometimes going through a time of suffering feels lonely. It feels like as hard as people may try, nobody really understands you. But he understands because he has come near to us. He's lived among us and he's still dwelling with us now by his spirit. God's understanding of our situation and his presence with us in it can totally transform how we experience suffering. Secondly, uh, I mentioned understanding suffering in light of God's sovereignty and goodness. So what do I mean by that exactly? I mean that suffering and trials, that all the difficulties that we go through in life, they absolutely don't fall outside the realm of God's control or of his perfectly loving and good character. Scripture is really clear about the fact that God is sovereign over all things and that his will and his good purposes will stand. So we can be confident that our suffering isn't random and isn't without a purpose. So we often can't see or understand that purpose, but we know that we have an infinitely good and wise Father in heaven who's working everything together for ultimate good and for his glory. God is 
ruling over all things, totally in control, and he will turn everything for eternal good. How does this, uh, how does this reframe our suffering? Well, perhaps through suffering, God might be growing us in some way. He might be teaching us something or equipping, uh, equipping us for something. The book of James also uh, contains a lot of wisdom about joy and suffering. And there we read in James 1, verses 2 to 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What strikes me here is that not only does James say that we can have joy despite trials, he actually goes so far as to say that we can count it joy when we meet trials because of the steadfastness that it's growing in us. That is such a different and counterintuitive perspective, isn't it? But I think in a world where we know that our good God is totally reigning over everything, including over our trials, over our sufferings, and where we know that he's with us in them and working them for ultimate good, well, that attitude suddenly starts to make a lot more sense. Because God growing us in Christ-likeness and in godliness is a great kindness. Andrew and Rachel Wilson believe this, and I think it's part of the answer to how they have joy in their circumstances. Andrew says at one point in the book that whenever he prays, he reminds himself that the person he's speaking to loves him, is for him, and wants what is best for him. And he acknowledges that if God doesn't give him what he wants, then it's because somehow, ultimately, there must be something better. The wonderful truth of God's word is that he is sovereign and he is good. And in that sovereignty, we find him near to us, working in us to produce things of eternal value and working for our ultimate greater good. Thirdly, uh, we find hope in the incredible promises that God has made to us. And all of Scripture testifies that our God is a God who keeps his promises. God promises in Revelation that a future without suffering awaits us in the new creation. It says there that God will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's from Revelation 21. So God is making all things new. And one day, all things are going to be restored to how they were meant to be, with no death, no mourning, no crying and no pain. That's where Horatio Spafford got his hope from. In the final verse of his great hymn, he says, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That future hope gave him joy.
But that said, uh, the here and the now isn't just a waiting game until we get to that point. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The first thing to notice here, or the first thing that jumped out to me in any case, is that uh, the Bible calls our afflictions light and momentary. And maybe uh, your gut reaction to that is that it's insensitive and out of touch because, I mean, there are people in this world whose afflictions we absolutely would not categorize as light and momentary. There are people in this world who are severely disabled for their entire lives. Or there are people who live their whole life in desperate poverty. Or there are people who experience heavy emotional trauma that they have to deal with for decades. But the key here, I think, to properly understanding what Paul is saying is that really it's all about what you're comparing it to. So Paul would have been aware of heavy suffering in the world, and I I don't think he was trying to trivialize anyone's suffering. But what this really speaks to is the almost unfathomable greatness of what Paul is comparing our present situation to. What he calls an eternal weight of glory. I can't get my head around that. So rather than thinking God and the Bible don't understand suffering, maybe we need to switch it around and think that perhaps we don't understand that glory. I don't think we can fully comprehend what that glory of eternity with God will be like. But wow, if the suffering in this world is light and momentary compared to that glory, it must be indescribably good. And in some way, our afflictions in this life are actually helping to produce or bring about that eternal weight of glory. So while I I don't quite understand how that works, we do know and we can trust that there's a purpose in it. Again, it's God doing what is ultimately good for you. He is with you and he is for you. And ultimately, we find joy in suffering because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. We find joy in the peace of knowing Jesus and his salvation. The knowledge that, like Horatio Spafford says, Whatever my lot, it is well with my soul. We see that in Philippians 3 verse 8, which is where Paul says that line. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is a man who has lost so much in worldly terms, prestige, power, respect, comfort, physical safety. But he now considers all of those things rubbish 
in order that he should gain Christ. And knowing Jesus as our God, our creator, our sustainer, the one who gives us life and through whom we have peace with God, as Colossians 1 puts it, knowing that Jesus right now and experiencing fellowship with him is better and more satisfying than anything else. And I'm preaching this to myself as much as I'm preaching it to you because I so often and so quickly forget this, that all of the worldly gain in the world is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing and having fellowship with Christ our Saviour. And what ultimately ties all these things together, what we see coming back time and time again through all of this, is the fact that God is present with us in our sufferings. It's because he's come and dwelt with us that he understands our suffering. And in his sovereignty, he is working in us to produce things of eternal value. And in God's promises of a future without suffering, we see his close love and care for us. And incredibly, in knowing Jesus, we have fellowship and unity with our Creator and Savior. This is the incredible difference that knowing God makes in suffering. And I think that really ties in to how we understand blessing in the Christian life as well. Blessing means favor from God, and sometimes we equate blessing from God with physical comfort and material provision. But what does the Bible actually say blessing is? We can turn again to the Psalms here, which are really helpful. And the more we look into this, the more we see that blessing actually has not a whole lot to do with material or earthly things. Take Psalm 32 as an example, which says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Well, Psalm 84 says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and blessed is the one who trusts in you. Or Psalm 34, where in verse 8 it says, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in God. So true blessing from God is the fact that he is with us, that he is our salvation, that he's our strength, that he's our refuge. In other words, the greatest blessing is God himself, his presence. I was messaging a good friend of mine from Sydney last week, and I told her that I was preparing to speak on this topic. And she said uh, she shared some insights from her own experience of suffering with me. And what I found particularly beautiful is how she described her clear sense of the presence and nearness of God in her suffering. She described it as an encounter with the beauty and majesty of him who is so other and so far outside my circumstances, yet is so concerned with the detail of them. And she said that in her experience, God dwelling with us transforms the emotional experience of suffering into one that isn't governed by circumstance, but by the company of him who is with us. So it's that 
nearness of God that comforts and assures us in our suffering. And I think that's where people like the Apostle Paul and Horatio Spafford and the Wilsons find their joy in the midst of these incredibly trying circumstances. So how should we respond to suffering then? How should we respond when we face trials? All of these great truths about God's presence with us in suffering, they definitely don't mean uh, that we ought to not experience the full depth of sadness or anxiety or anger that comes with our suffering. It is okay to feel those things, and it's okay to mourn. There's absolutely a place for that. And the Psalms make it clear that we can express those emotions to God and that He is our loving Father who listens to us. We don't need to hide our emotions from Him or pretend that everything's okay. In the Psalms, we see people doubting God, questioning Him, raising their voices to Him in desperation and anguish. In Andrew and Rachel Wilson's book, there's a meditation on Psalm 130. And this is a psalm which also begins with weeping, with crying out to God. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your, hear, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And I want to read part of the Wilson's reflection on that. They say, This is an anguished start. It's not a careful, measured reflection on the nature of pain or an attempt to explain it. It's a cry from the depths, a desperate plea for mercy, accompanied by red eyes, sniffling, tissues, shaking shoulders, and jowls smeared with salt water. That's where our response to suffering is meant to begin. Many of us, fueled by fears, doubts, or insecurities, want to rush in with questions, answers, advice, or just plain silly comments, like it'll be all right. But there's a place for just wailing about it, like Jesus did when his friend died, and like the psalmists seem to do all the time. And a little later, they go on in the book, in that same reflection, saying, Having said that, there comes a point when, after a period of weeping, the believer begins worshipping God in the darkness. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. This line helps us to see what the psalmist was crying about. He has sinned against God and needs mercy. But even when our grief is of a different sort from this, prompted by sickness, death, poverty, persecution, or whatever, this is a wonderful way to respond to it. With the darkness all around us, and with the wounds still fresh, we lift our tear-stained faces to God and begin to worship Him for the gospel. So in those times of suffering, don't walk away from God, but lean into Him. Cry out to Him and draw near to Him as your Father and worship Him. And to be clear, that doesn't mean the pain isn't there anymore. 
of course the pain is still there. As great as it is to celebrate the, the, the goodness of the gospel. But that's also where we can remember the wonderful promises of God. Promises to restore the world and to eventually end pain and suffering. We know that God is good and faithful and keeps his promises. Another great response to suffering is to remind your own heart of truth and even to speak truth to yourself. Reminding yourself of biblical truth is a great way to bolster your joy in the gospel. If we are continually allowing gospel truths to reign supreme in our hearts and minds, that will help us to lift our gaze beyond our immediate circumstances and towards finding joy in God's purposes for our lives and for the world. And sometimes that reminding takes the form of speaking to ourselves. We see an example of this again in the Psalms, in Psalm 42 verse 5. And the psalmist talks to himself here, saying, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So the psalmist here actually questions his own assessment of the situation and encourages himself to change his attitude by speaking truth to himself. The truth that the Lord is his salvation and his God. And of course, the necessary precursor to speaking truth to yourself is knowing the truth by knowing God's word and being devoted to reading it and understanding it. That way we'll be enabled to do this, to remind ourselves of truth when our natural self may be telling us things that are not true. And this self-talk or self-reminding, I think, is part of what it looks like to seriously pursue joy in God. You might think of joy as something that just happens. It either is or it isn't, and you don't really have any influence over it. Um, but there is a sense in which God, joy in God is something that we can pursue. And this, being devoted to his word and regularly reminding ourselves of gospel truth, this is a great way to do that, to pursue joy. And finally, um, wonderfully, our suffering as Christians is in the context of the church. The church is an incredible blessing. We don't have to walk our Christian walk alone. We have each other. Paul writes in Galatians 6 verse 2 that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens conjures up the image of sharing a load together. So when someone in here, someone in the church has a heavy load, we can try to find ways to help them carry it. And if we do that, we'll be fulfilling the law of Christ, the law of love, of loving others as yourself. Because the church is meant to be a refuge for those suffering. It's meant to be a place where we can be completely real and open about where we're at and where we can show each other the, the love of Christ in response. So bear one another's burdens. Encourage each other 
and come alongside each other in your trials. Be a conduit of Christ's love and a reflection of God's nearness and care in suffering. Let's be that to one another. And really practically, a way that you can start doing this is to be the first one to be brave enough to share your burdens. Ask someone to come come alongside you. Ask your brothers and sisters in here to pray with you. Because once we open ourselves up and are vulnerable with people, we can truly start bearing one another's burdens. So take that first step by sharing your burdens with someone else in this community that you trust. So where does this leave us? Well, we know that we will all suffer in some way, but there's hope and joy to be found in the midst of that suffering because God is with you and he's good and he's faithful. And the most incredible display of God's presence with us is that he became one of us. That's, of course, what Christmas is all about. God hasn't left us to our own devices. He's not some distant, far-off God that we can't know and that doesn't know us. No, he is actually with us and for us, and so much so that he became one of us. And not only is he present with us in our humanity, but as I've said already, he's present with us in our suffering because he has suffered. And he ultimately suffered to the point of death on a cross, bearing the entire weight of humanity's sin. So it's by his suffering that we receive the greatest joy, the greatest hope, knowing that it is truly well with our souls, that there is now no condemnation for us if we trust Jesus, but that instead we are now God's children who will live with him in eternity.